Good morning. It's lovely to be with you all this morning. My name is Nicola. Now, if you're new to Christchurch or you've missed us because you've been away on holiday or out of London for the last few weeks, we are in a series exploring spiritual fitness. And we're looking at a bit of the Bible that says, basically, train yourselves for godliness. Whole bodily training is of some value. So the Bible says, yes, good, go to the gym, keep fit, that is all good. But godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So we're in this series on spiritual fitness. We're looking at how do we train ourselves to be godly? How do we stay spiritually fit as we live in this world? And so that's what we've been looking at. We've been looking at all kinds of different things. And today we come to the spiritual exercise of confession. who trumped in the car, mummy? Although they don't use the word trumped, but it seems more appropriate for this service. Uh, who made a smell? It's heard with more frequency than I would like to admit. Um, and the honest truth is, with my hand on my heart, is that yesterday it was the dog. But <laughs> there are times when we've all said Who's trumped? Who's made the smell? And there are, on every occasion over the past year, a time when probably each of us has contributed to that smell, if we're being honest. Now, on our good days, we own up to the fact that we've trumped. We giggle because it's a little bit embarrassing, but it also feels good to let it go and move on. And confession is a little bit like that. It's a bit smelly. We're all guilty and in need of doing it. And we're all on the same footing. We may say we never trump, but you do, even if it's in your sleep. You do. Confession's the same. We actually, we're all on an equal footing with it. We all have fallen short of God's standards. And we all equally receive the fresh giggle and lightness that comes when we actually do confess. So this is what we're going to be exploring a little bit in depth today, and we're going to be doing that through looking at an unusual story in Samuel. It's a great, um, it's a brilliant story. I love this bit of the scripture. It's full of action and um, And yeah, just have it open in front of you because we're kind of going to be flipping around that first bit of 1 Samuel. So just to set it in context, in chapter 3, we learn that Samuel was born into a time when it was rare to hear God's voice. In chapter 2, we learn that there's a lot of wickedness around in the people, but also a lot of wickedness in the religious leaders. Yet, by the end of chapter 7, the bit we had read today, the people have repented of their sins before God en masse. They've turned back to God, and they end up with a joyous celebration. God Almighty turns up, fights their battles on their behalf, and they are kept safe. But for these people of God to journey to that place where they come together and they confess their sins, they need to let go of two things. I wonder what would you think those two things are? What do you think we might need to let go of to confess to God? 
I wonder what you'd say. I think a lot of people assume that Christians are going to tell them off for their moral failings, that they think they need to get morally good enough before they can come before God and confess. And it's true that our moral failings are a consequence of us turning our back on God, but it's not actually those two things God asks us to let go of. So here they are. The first thing God tells the people of God to let go of is their reliance on their own strategy. And the second thing is their reliance upon their own material things. So their reliance on their strategy and their reliance on their own material things are the things they need to set aside if they're going to come and confess their sins to God. So let's see how this works. Back in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, God's people get defeated by the Philistine army. And they assume that their defeat is all to do with their own lack of planning. They didn't plan well enough for the battle. They didn't have the right strategy in place. And that's why they lost. So they have a little think and they gather together and they go, I know the way we're going to win the battle is if we get the ark of God and we bring it into the battle with us. And the ark of God was that special box where they had the Ten Commandments in and it was holy and special. And they thought if we took this special thing into the battle with us, there's no way that we will lose the battle. God will look after us. It's going to be great. Right, folks, that's our new strategy. The the Philistines who are fighting against them catch wind of their strategy. And they kind of go, do you know what? Those Israelites, they're going to bring the ark into the battle. And even though they didn't follow God, they respected that there might be a powerful God and they were afeared. And so they gathered together. They got all their men together and they're like, right, guys. They've taken the ark into the battle. We're going to have to fight really hard. Let's go. And they egg themselves up and they get ready to fight this epic battle. And they basically say to each other, we're going to have to fight really hard because the Israelites have got the ark. And do you know what happens? They do. They fight really hard. And that day, 30,000 Israelites are slaughtered in this epic battle in history. The Philistines defeat the Israelites. They capture the ark. The Israelites' strategy has failed. And you see, when God's people get defeated in battle, everyone suffers. There's huge rippling consequences that happen from this battle. Eli and his daughter-in-laws in shock, the high priest and his daughter-in-laws in shock of hearing the news die. Um, there's all kinds of pain that happens. Obviously, they've lost 30,000 men. That's like massive. And also, the Philistines begin to suffer. Why? Because they've defeated God's people, which they weren't meant to. They've captured the ark, which they're not meant to have. They're not being given the ark by God. And they start to get sick and get tumors and all kinds of things start going wrong for them. Everybody loses because God's people thought they could win the battle by relying on their own strategy. And just for a moment, to bring that right back down to us. How often do we walk this life doing it our way? 
I mean, how often do we plan our week not asking God, but, but suggesting to God, this is what I've got to do? How often do we ultimately rely on our own strategy, our own understanding, our own abilities to get through the week? And so the first thing that happens to God's people is that they realize they've come to the end of their tether and they realize their strategy has failed. They're going to need to lay it down afresh before God. The second thing that they have to lie down is their confidence in material things. You see, They'd brought the ark into the battle, and basically the ark was special, but it wasn't God. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, True believers worship the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. The second thing the people of God needed to ditch was their confidence in the things around them, whether that was like the physical possession of that ark or in people. You know, we all do it. It's going to be great because I've got this person on board and this is going to work because we've got this money here to support it and that's going to work because of... And we end up, although that's good to use what we have, when we start relying on that more than relying on God himself... Our hearts turn from him. And that's what happened to God's people. They had their brilliant strategy, so they thought. They had their brilliant material item, so they thought. But they didn't inquire of God. They did not seek God's help. They did not lay it before him. And so in order to come before God now and to confess that they messed up, they're going to have to let go of their strategy and they're going to have to lay down their reliance on their material things. There is, of course, another tendency with material items and that's that we can be flippant with what God's given us. So there's sort of like the over-reliance and... um, we can kind of see if we have a tendency to over-rely on things, we'll tend to over-indulge. So, um, for example, uh, I'm feeling stressed. I'll over-indulge in a Netflix series just to switch my mind off. Okay, that, that's all right. It's okay to do that. It's not, you know, it's, that's okay. But, but when it then becomes that we rely on that to f- feed our refreshment rather than God... We're then putting that thing in God's place. So a quick little tester in our own spiritual lives is to think, well, am I over-relying on material things? Is where am I overindulging in life? So it's good to enjoy a glass of wine, but where am I overindulging it? It's good to be in relationships and enjoy friendships and stuff, but where might I be overindulging? And where you're overindulging tends to be the marker of when you're relying on those things to refresh you rather than upon God. And the people of God were relying on this special magical ark to sort them out rather than on God himself. But the other tendency is to be flippant with what they have because um, 
The ark, although it wasn't a magical, special thing, it was a precious thing that God had given them. And when they get it back, they actually become quite flippant with it. And we read about that in 1 Samuel. And 70 Israelite men end up getting put to death for not treating it with the respect it deserves. So we have this funny thing with the things we have around us. We're not to lean on them, put our reliance upon them. But at the same time, we are to respect them. And I wonder what that looks like in West London, because God has resourced us with things, and God doesn't want us to be flippant with those things. He wants us to enjoy them and to take them and to use them for his glory. So we're not to beat ourselves up about relaxing over a Netflix series. That's okay. The line comes where the overindulgence on it means we're, we're asking it to be our refreshment rather than God itself. And the difficulty is when we're flippant with what we have. We just kind of, well, whatever. Actually, we're to respect each day, each hour, each breath, each thing God brings our way, and to give it up to him. How could you use this, Lord, for your kingdom? So, these are the things that they have to lay down and they have to kind of uh, sort before the Lord And the religious leaders of their time are no different. There's a really interesting bit where Eli, the high priest, hears about their loss in battle. And um, it's this kind of really gross bit in the Bible where basically like he falls over and like breaks his neck. And it has this little line in it because he was also overweight. But and that little line, it isn't like a dig at, at overweightness we all you know it's not that it's an insight into the fact that even he as a religious leader had overindulged as people brought their sacrifices to the temple he'd overfilled himself and overindulged and it's a spiritual insight and so God's just people are having to sort of go okay we've got to lay down our strategy We've got to lay down our reliance in the material things around us. We need to come afresh to God. The spiritual discipline of confession is beautiful. It's a gift to us. Because when we do it... We're putting the Lord Jesus back on the throne where he belongs. And we get to experience peace, joy, forgiveness, guilt goes. We get to be made right by God. It's an amazing thing. It's a gift. And yet somehow in the church today, we find it awkward. We're not sure how to do it. We'd rather avoid it. I stood up and I was speaking to a group of leaders uh, a little while ago. There were about 500 uh, church leaders in the room. And I sort of said to them, look, I'm going to have to give you like a personal example of this. And it's painful for me because it's embarrassing, but I'm going to do it publicly. So I said to them, my public confession with you is that sometimes I'm jealous of those of you that own your own house. I'm jealous because... 
it just looks great that you've got that security. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that because I'm thinking that that security then frees you to be a better minister. So what I've come to realize is that actually my trust isn't on whether God can use me, but on what physical resource I have. And that's an issue. And I need to confess that. So there's nothing wrong with owning a house. It's a great thing. And if God provides that, that's a wonderful thing. And if God gives an opportunity, that's a sensible thing. But there's something about unpacking where we rely upon our own strategy and our own material items to be our foundation, to be our bedrock, rather than our relationship with God himself. Because if I truly believe that God is almighty and all-powerful, it makes no difference whether I have a house or not as to how good a minister I will be. It doesn't. So what do I believe? And there's something about confession that focuses in on what is it that we believe right now? Who is in charge? Who is Lord of our lives? What do we need to lay down so that he can take his rightful place, so that we really can be free to be his in wherever he's called us to be? And that looks uniquely different for each one of us. But there are times when, as God's people, we need to come and confess together. And that's what we find a little bit in this passage. God's people have realized that they have all strayed from his ways. They've all messed up. They've all got it wrong. And it's not a weakness that they come to confession. It's an honoring of knowing who God is. When we commit ourselves to only him. And I don't know if you've noticed this in scripture, um, but it's not hard. As you look back over the Old Testament, you'll see, we all know this lovely bit in Joel where it says the spirit will come and the men will prophesy and the ladies will visions and dreams and they'll look like God's spirit comes in abundance. Yet we forget that in chapter two, the people of God have gone, we're so sorry for the way we've messed up. There's something about our confessing, our laying ourselves down again, which allows the Holy Spirit to refresh us, refill us, re-revive us, and resend us out into mission in his world. It's vital, and it's a weekly act, a daily act, to confess our sins. Last week, before the nine o'clock, I was having a little chat to some of the ladies in the kitchen, and we were all kind of talking about how we don't really like instructions and being told what to do. Anyone else there? Yeah, anyone? If someone tells you what to do, you kind of have an irksome reaction inside. You're like, no, don't tell me how to do that. Um, anyone? Yeah, a few of us. Um, 
admit to that kind of thing, you know, like if someone starts lectures, we just like switch off. No, I'm not. I'm just not going to do that. Um, but we were saying actually that the, the points, whoever's written them up about how to use the coffee machine is are quite helpful. So we, we admitted that. But um, it's a sense in which I think the reason we don't like confession is because we've got that rebellion in us that we don't like being told what to do. We don't really like somebody else pointing out that we might have got something wrong. We don't really want to be convicted in that way because then it might mean that we have to do something different and quite frankly, we're too busy or tired to manage that. That there's something about coming to confession which says, do you know what, Lord Jesus? You are bigger than me. You will provide all the strength I need to do all the things you want me to do. So actually I can trust you when I come to you and lay my life down again. I can trust you because you are a good God. And so what happens in Samuel is that God's people come together and they start confessing their sins and they bow down and they pray and they start praying out their sins and they're saying sorry to God and they have this like amazing kind of prayer meeting on the battlefield. And what happens is the Philistines are looking over and the Philistines go, oh my goodness, guys, they're regrouping to fight us again. I mean, we annihilated them last time with 30,000. They were just totally gone. It's like an awful like action movie. They're gathering again to like fight us. And so the Philistines think we've got to attack straight away. We've got to get rid of these Israelites once and for all. And so they start marching towards the Israelites. And at this point, they're vulnerable. They don't have anything material. They've lost their strategy. They don't know what to do. And so they just say, Samuel, just keep praying. Just keep praying to God for us. Keep praying to God. And as they lay everything down and they say, sorry, God, you take control again. Then, from a time in history when God had been completely silent, in that moment, God speaks and he thunders. And in that moment, the voice of God comes and the Philistines are destroyed as the Lord fights the battle on behalf of his people. They are sent fleeing in fear. I wonder just for a moment if we can grasp this. That we'll let God fight for us. And that we'd lay down just for a moment our reliance upon our own strategies and our reliance upon the material and lay it all down again before him. Confess our sins. And what happens after that is a party. Of course there's a party. They rejoice, they're free, they're refreshed. And Samuel says, we're not going to forget this moment. We're not going to forget what the Lord's done for us. And so they erect this like almighty big stone because, I don't know, they didn't have billboards or graphic designers do nice posters. So they got like this big stone and they call it the Ebenezer stone. And the stone Ebenezer, it means God is our help. And so when it comes to this work of confession, we're saying, God, be our help. 
And it's a beautiful thing. It's a gift to us. So I invite you today and into this week and into the month to come, when you notice that thing that you know the Spirit's just kind of gone, hmm, that wasn't quite right. Or you know you've been following your own plan for too long. You haven't actually let God into it. You haven't surrendered it. But we're quick to just say, sorry, Lord, would you come back in? I lay it down again. Would you come and be Lord? And I'm sorry when I've filled all the holes and all the gaps with all the other things. And and we're all equally um, smelly in this sense. Would you come and make me smell beautiful again? And so confession, the spiritual exercise of confession, is delivered this morning as a gift to you and I. A beautiful gift. It's worth working through the pain. We're not asked to stay in that first half of, oh, I'm so bad, I'm so sorry, I'm so evil, I'm so rubbish, Lord Jesus. We are to do that meaningfully. But confession then invites us back into the heart of worship and to a place of receiving God's forgiveness. There are some of us, just a few of us, that from time to time we're too comfortable in that I'm just so bad, I'm so horrible. And that's comfortable because it means we can just stay there and not actually really change anything. But actually when we confess our sins, God then says, receive my forgiveness. Now go and sin no more. There's that invitation to go on again. Go and try again. Go with me this time. Take me with you into your workplace today. Let's start again. In that argument, you can do it differently. I'll help you. Let's go again. In that stress point this week, we can handle it differently. Let me do it with you. Let's go again. And say the people of God had that chance to go again. And instead, they just said, Samuel, pray for us. Pray for us, Samuel, help. (laughs) That's not a bad place to start. Help. Help me, Lord. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. We invite you to convict us where we need convicting. We invite you to help us confess our wrongs. And we invite you then to help us live free in the forgiveness you give.
Lord, just help us now as we come and we take communion. Help us to commune with you. Help us to do business with you. And would we leave here this morning the most joyous of people, knowing that you take our sins as far as the east is from the west, that you lovingly restore us every time we come and we say sorry. May we receive that grace in the way you want us to and leave here full of joy and peace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.